So we're continuing this morning in our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 1. And I'm going to kind of bounce around the first 18 verses is where we're going to be. Uh, but you guys remember, we are uh, doing this sermon series on this ancient creed, uh, well known as the Apostles' Creed, this ancient statement of faith uh, that has been around for nearly a thousand years, the third century, um, this articulation of the faith was created. Um, and it's made me think a lot about our last sermon series in 1 Timothy. You guys remember the Apostle Paul's writing to his young protege, Timothy, and also writing to the church in Ephesus. Uh, you remember chapter 6, verse 3, Paul writes, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, then that person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So it seems like that as the apostles got increasingly closer to the end of their lives and the end of their ministries, there was this increasing concern that the truth of the gospel be preserved into the next generation. Because all of the believers who had seen Jesus with their own eyes, all of the believers who had heard Jesus with their own ears, they were all dying. And Jesus' life and ministry was over, and his apostles' life and ministry was almost over. And so you were going to have the first generation of Christians who had never seen the Lord, who had never heard the Lord. And so there was this growing burden that the truth of the gospel be preserved. And so Paul says here, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not accord with the sound words about the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, that person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And so what the church began to do um, carefully, and there wasn't a whole lot of these, um, but was create these uh, boiled down, concise statements of faith that would capture the essence of Christianity. We titled this truth Essentials, Why the Truth Matters, because that's what they were getting at with this statement of faith. This is the essentials about who we are and what we believe. So we're working our way through this statement. Um, the first week, we talked about the first four words of the statement, I believe in God. And then last week, as the creed goes on, it starts to get more specific about who God is. So we talked about, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And the creed continues to get specific. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son and our Lord. So that's our focus this morning, is the person of Jesus. And what was chosen for us is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You know, the three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of slow roll a little bit, kind of slow roll into revealing the eternal majesty of Jesus. John does just the opposite. From the very start, he lifts the veil on the mystery and wonder and glory of the person of Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at these first 18 verses. I'm going to skip around a little bit as I'm reading, but first let's read the Apostles' Creed together. Ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. 
He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jumping down to verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then jumping down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tom Wright is now an author and seminary professor, but for seven years he served in Oxford, England as the chaplain for Worcester College. And every fall when school began, he would get a chance to briefly but individually meet with each new student incoming to the campus. And he writes this about these different exchanges that he had. He says, each year I used to see the first-year undergraduates individually for a few minutes to welcome them to the college and make a first acquaintance. Most of them were happy to meet with me, but many of these students commented, often with slight embarrassment, you won't be seeing much of me, chaplain. You see, I don't believe in God. I heard this so often that I developed this standard response. Oh, that's interesting. Which God is it that you don't believe in? This reply would surprise the students because they mostly regarded the word God as a univocal, obvious word, always meaning the same thing to everyone. So they would then stumble out a few phrases about the God they said they didn't believe in. A being who lived up in the sky, who looked down disapprovingly at the world, occasionally intervening to do miracles, sending bad people to hell while allowing good people to share in his heaven. And so again, I then shared a standard response to this very common statement of spy-in-the-sky theology, as I call it. And my standard response was, I don't believe in that God either. 
At this point, the undergraduate would then look startled, so I would clarify, no, as a Christian minister, I don't believe in the the spy-in-the-sky, watered-down caricature of a God that you just described. I believe in the God I see revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. How do we know what God is like? And what helps fill out our definition of who God is? Much like these young college students, for many in our culture, their vision of God is formed by cheesy Hallmark movies, silly holiday greeting cards, you know, where God is sort of this cosmic version of Morgan Freeman. God is imagined to be some sort of supreme being up in heaven. But with these visions of God, there's often a lot of sentimentality and not a lot of substance. With these cultural visions of God, there's often a lot of ambiguity and not a lot of clarity. That's why when Wright was finding out what these non-students believed about God, he told them, I don't believe in that God either. So how do we know what God is like and what helps fill out our vision of God? Well, what we see in this morning's text and what we see articulated in the Apostles' Creed is the truth that Jesus shines light on God. The life and teaching and person of Jesus gives clarity and definition to what God is like. As the chaplain said to these students, I don't believe in those silly, unbiblical gods that you're describing either. Instead, I believe in the God I see revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Listen again to verse 18 from John chapter 1. The apostle says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God, John says. So Moses did not see God even when they sat face to face in the tabernacle. Moses only saw the afterglow of the divine glory passing by, as one scholar put it. And Isaiah did not see God when he received the vision of the Lord on his throne in the temple. You remember Isaiah chapter 6, he says that he only saw the hem of the Lord's garment. So the Apostle John says, no one has ever seen God. No one has known as fully as they could what God is like. But now, the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, has made him known. And that's why we're saying here, Jesus shines light on who God is. Jesus' life and teaching and person gives clarity and definition to who God is. So friends, this is right at the heart of the gospel. This is right at the heart of the message of Jesus. You can know God. You can know who he is, what he's like. The unknowable, unseeable, supremely holy, transcendent God. You can know him because he has made himself known. He has revealed himself most clearly in the person of Jesus. So as we work our way back through this passage of Scripture, we're simply asking ourselves, how? How does Jesus reveal God? In what ways does he do this? First, we're going to see Jesus is able to make God known because of and through his relationship with God. Jesus is able to make God known because of and through his relationship with God. So looking back at the first few verses of John's Gospel, These are some of the most debated and contentious verses in the New Testament, especially when you consider our differences with groups like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other groups who deny the full deity of Jesus, 
who deny that Jesus is fully God. They will argue that these verses should be translated and interpreted in such a way to play down the divinity of Jesus. But regardless of where we or they may stand on such matters, none of us deny that Jesus has a uniquely intimate relationship with God. So listen once more to verses 1 through 4, these opening words to all of John's gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we're going to find out later in verse 14, it's Jesus who is here called the Word, and this Word who is Jesus has a striking relationship with God. John says the Word was with God, even the Word was God. So this unique dynamic here, one that we talked about last week when we spoke about the Trinity. On the one hand, John says that Jesus is distinct from God. He says that he's with God. But on the other hand, he equates Jesus with God. He says that the Word was God. So there's both distinction and unity between Jesus and God. And Jesus has related with God like this, John says, all the way since the beginning. And it was then at the beginning that through Jesus, God's word spoke everything into existence. Verse 3, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this verse again speaks to the unique relationship that Jesus has with God. You think about it. All of us relate to God as creatures. He is the creator and we are his creatures. And this creator-creature distinction defines so much of our relationship with him. He is the Lord, we are his servants. He is God, we are human. He is infinite, we are finite. All of this can be said to stem from the fact that he made us. He's our creator, we are his creatures. But not so with Jesus. Notice what John says about him here. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. So John says, of all the things that have ever been created, none of them were created apart from Jesus, the Word of God. In other words, he's not a creature. Certainly not a creature in the way that you and I are. So right off the bat in John's gospel, in these first few verses, we see Jesus has this unique relationship with God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. The Word was God. And of all the things that have ever been made, none of it was made apart from Him. But the way that Scripture describes Jesus' unique relationship with God most commonly and perhaps most powerfully is this. Not only is Jesus the uncreated Word of God, He is also the only begotten Son of God. You see this reflected in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son. And not surprisingly, in these opening words of John's Gospel, where he's right away pulling back the curtain on who Jesus is, it's here that along with naming him the Word of God, who is active at creation, he also calls him the Son of God. So skipping ahead to verse 14, this beautiful, wonderful verse. John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. No one has ever seen God. 
But Jesus, who is the Word of God, Jesus, who is the uncreated one, Jesus, who is God's Son, He is able to reveal God. He is able to make God known unlike anyone ever. Similarly, listen to the way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And this idea of Jesus being the image of God, it's closely related to him being the Son of God and how as God's image, Jesus makes God known. So for example, a couple of Saturdays ago, a week ago yesterday, my family and I had the Trepos over for dinner. Dan and Krista Trepo are a family here at our church. Many of you know them. They and their four children came over for dinner, and as we sat around the dinner table laughing and talking, as we sat around our living room sharing stories and watching silly YouTube videos, it was striking to me how their children are like these little images of Dan and Krista. Their personalities, the way they talk, their sense of humor, their physical appearance. Each of their children bear the image and likeness of Dan and Krista. So in a sense, if you want to get to know them, get to know their children because their children are reflections of them. Their children are images of them. John is saying it's the same thing with God and his son. If you want to get to know God, get to know his son. If you want to know what God is like, get to know God's Son. Jesus is the only Son from the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Was Adam close with God? Sure. It says that he walked with God in the cool of the day. Was Abraham close with God? Yes, we're told that Abraham had an amazing journey of faith that he walked. Or you think about Moses. Was Moses close with God? Absolutely. As I mentioned, he sat in the tabernacle with God as if face to face. And the apostle Paul even, was he close with God? Yes. The apostle had a uniquely amazing adventure of missionary movement. But all of these guys are mere men. All of these guys who were so close with God, they are mere creatures, broken creatures, like you and me, broken by sin. You think about Adam, he was passive, allowing Satan to deceive his wife. You think about Abraham, he was impatient, struggling to wait on God to fulfill his promises. Or Moses, Moses was often angry at one point, murdering a man. I feel like we forget that too easily. Moses murdered a dude. At another point, he lashed out at God and his people. Even the Apostle Paul said that he was only worth following inasmuch as he followed Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow me as I follow Christ, he said. So all of these men, great as they are, close with God as they are, none of them have anything on Jesus. As it's been said before, the best of men are men at best. But Jesus is no mere man. Jesus is no mere creature. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the uncreated word of God. He's the only begotten son of God. And so I urge you, make him the center of your life. Not 
Abraham, not Moses, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not any other spiritual guru or pastor. Make Jesus the center of your life. Study his life. Soak in his teaching. Follow his example. Connect with his heart. And if you do, you will know God. You will know what God is like. How is it that Jesus can make God known? Because of his unique relationship with God as the uncreated word and his only son. Secondly, finally, Jesus is able to make God known because he enlightens everyone who believes in him. And we should say, not only does Jesus enlighten everyone who believes in him, but his light exposes everyone who does not believe in him. So there's sort of the two sides to this truth. Through trusting in Jesus, putting our faith in him, we step into the light and are able to know who God is. But when we resist Jesus, when we refuse him, then we flee from the light and remain in darkness about who God is. Listen to how John puts it in verse 9. John chapter 1, verse 9 and forward. He writes, The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So from the very start of John's gospel, he lets us know that Jesus experienced resistance. The world did not know him. Even his own people did not receive him. Why is this? Because you'd think if the creator of the creatures showed up in the creation, that the, crea- the creatures would acknowledge him, that we would appreciate him. But that's not what happened. Why? Listen to the way Jesus puts it in John chapter 3, a couple of chapters later. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. He says this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, this is kind of a crude illustration, but it's the best I could come up with. So, I am from the deep south where it is hot and humid and consequently there are roaches. These little creatures that my wife says are the chief indication that our world has fallen in sin (laughs) and broken. Roaches would not exist if sin hadn't existed. That's her theology anyway. And my grandparents owned an old 1950s beach cabin near the Florida coast. And every time we would go there for a weekend or whatever, we would enter the house and start turning on lights, oftentimes for the first time in weeks. And what do you think we saw? Roaches hanging out, but they don't hang out for long. They don't just sit there. No, they scatter. They hate the light, and it's not because the light like inherently hurts them, like burns their skin like a vampire. No, they hate the light because it exposes them. It gives them away. So in that sense, they hate the light. That's exactly what John is saying in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. The unbelieving world resists Jesus. They reject the light because he exposes their evil works. The beauty and glory and love and righteousness of Jesus' life and teaching, it shines an exposing light on the world's wickedness. 
Now, when we shined light on those beach cabin roaches, as I said, they scattered, they ran in fear, and some people do that with God. The light of God's truth comes into their life, they hate it, and so they run. That's certainly a part of my own story. I was 19 years old, right out of high school, when I heard the gospel for the first time, and I hightailed it out of that town and away from the people who were sharing the gospel with me. Some people hate the light, and so they run from it. Other people hate the light, and so they attack it. That certainly is the Pharisees' story in Jesus' day. They sought to extinguish the light of Christ by attacking him and nailing him to a cross. But whether you resist him by running from his light or resist him by attacking his light, the result is the same. We remain in darkness. We remain in ignorance about who God is. And I would say, ultimately, we remain in ignorance about who we are. But chapter 1, verse 12, John continues, To all who did receive him, to all who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of blood, children born not of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, children born of God. So the light of Christ has shone into the world through his incarnation 2,000 years ago and now through the spread of the gospel. The light of Christ has shone into the world. Some refused that light and remain in darkness about who God is. Others, by God's grace, receive that light through faith and are given the right, John says, to become children of God and children know their father. That's why we say, you trust in Jesus, you will know who God is because he will be your father. You'll have a relationship with him only through Jesus. Can we be enabled to know God like this? So John is saying that the dividing line between all the people in the world, the dividing line between all the people in the world, it's not the good and the bad. It's not the religious and the irreligious. It's not the progressives and the conservatives. It's not the males or the females. It's not the blacks or the whites. It's not this nationality or that nationality. It's not U of M or MSU. The only dividing line as far as God is concerned is how we respond to the person of Jesus. Do you receive him as the son of God? Do you receive him as the word of God, the light of the world, the savior of sinners, or do you reject him? Do you resist him? Do you run from him? That's the only dividing line that God cares about. You can have a good past, you can have a bad past. You can be religiously inclined. You can be irreligiously apathetic. You can be American or African or Asian or Hispanic. You can be U of M, MSU, or Ohio State even. Can you believe it? I wouldn't believe it if Scripture didn't say. In an ultimate sense, God does not care about these different divisions. Ultimately, the only dividing line that matters is how we respond to Jesus, his word, his son, the light of the world. So for those of us who have believed in Jesus, for those of us who identify with Christ as Christians, what are the things that are trying to replace him at the center of your life? What are the things swirling around you that are trying to replace Jesus 
as the center of your life? What are his rivals for your heart's affections? Church, let's not lose our first love. Church, let's stoke the flames of our passion and admiration for the Lord Jesus. It is only through him that we know God. It is only through him that we know forgiveness and grace and truth and freedom. And for those of you who have not believed in Jesus, for those of you who do not identify with Christ as one of his followers, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from giving your life to Jesus and living for him? I want you to know that whatever it may be, doubts, fears, questions, shame, whatever it may be, it is welcome here. It is welcome. And we as a church want to as graciously and lovingly as possible walk with you as you learn about Jesus and consider the claims of the gospel. And what John 1 is sharing about that gospel this morning is that you can know God through Jesus because no one knows God like Jesus. He is the Son of God, the Word of God, the uncreated one. And so he is able to make God known for you unlike anyone else. And through his life, death, and resurrection, his light has shone into the world. Yes, exposing our sin and brokenness, but also inviting us, also calling us to step into that light. And he will receive us. Our sin and shame and brokenness and fears and questions, he will receive us. Do you hear him calling? I urge you, step into the light. Confess your sin and brokenness before him and call on him as Lord and Savior, and he will receive you. I pray it would be so for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.